The following message was presented during the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries 2017 Prophecy Conference season. Now here's Clarence Johnson with a message from Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 30, Nebuchadnezzar's Nightmare. You have your Bibles with you this morning? I can tell you that in the three messages this morning, you are going to deal with the text. So you're going to need your Bible, and uh, as I'm going through uh, Daniel chapter 2 up to verse 30, we are going to deal with almost every verse. So we're going to have to move a little bit, and uh, we'll hustle a little bit, but I'm going, rather than reading those 30 verses, I want you to take your, t- your Bible, follow along. I'll be making mention of where some of the points come from in the text, and we'll be giving you a little bit more information than is in the outline. The outline is just a skeleton, and we're going to flesh that out a little bit for you. So, our message this morning is Nebuchadnezzar's Nightmare. And we'll see in a little while whether that might not be the best uh, title for it. But Nebuchadnezzar's Nightmare in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 30. If you take a good look at this chapter, what you're going to find that it is foundational for the rest of the book. In chapter 2 through chapter 7, what you have is you have the entire history of the world's kingdoms, of the Gentile world's kingdoms. In fact, not just you know, the world's history, but even into eternity. And so you have that history, and it's vital to understanding the rest of the book to understand what's going on in chapter 2 through chapter 7. Now, the context of this chapter is interesting. It was mentioned last night, but Daniel has been taken off in captivity. The Jewish people have been taken off in captivity. Judah has been captive, uh, has been deported, and uh, Jerusalem uh, is going to be destroyed. And uh, what we have here is we have someone who's sitting there, and uh, Daniel, I can imagine, he's probably saying, but Lord, what's going to happen to Israel? What's going to happen to us? Because you see, when a foreign nation conquered and then deported and assimilated and slaughtered, the culture ceased to exist. And that was the purpose in it. In fact, as you will see in the book of Daniel, the purpose of many of the conquering forces and the worldly earthly kingdoms is to devour and assimilate and do away with the culture that came before it. And so from all human standpoints, what we find is that Daniel is sitting there and the Jewish people that have been taken into captivity are sitting there going, you know what, Lord? This is the end. What happened to your promises? Daniel has been taken off to Babylon and he will no longer hear the sound of the shofar from the temple. The priests calling out to come and gather. The priests calling them to prayer. The sound of the shofar will never again be heard in Daniel's ears or in Jerusalem as far as they're concerned because they see no They see no hope. Daniel yearned to hear the sound of the shofar. But the Lord intervenes. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, we have the king's nightmare, as uh, our title says. Uh, If you look at verse 1, you'll see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. That's plural. So it wasn't just one dream. He had dreams, and it was a consistent dream. In fact, uh, it tells us that it was recurring. That's the structure of the language. He had recurring dreams. And his spirit was troubled. He was, he was distressed. 
He was in turmoil. The dreams were very impactful upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was disturbed. He was frightened. Now, I think it's important to understand that I don't believe from the text that Nebuchadnezzar was frightened like a nightmare, like ghosts or like, uh, you know, a, an alligator jumping up to bite you or something like that, or a lion chasing you. But he was troubled because he didn't understand the dreams. And he wanted to know what it was all about. And in that culture, dreams were very, very important and had deep meaning. So he was very troubled. So uh, even though our message is titled The King's Nightmare, I'm not sure it was the kind of nightmare that you and I might understand. It was a dream and a series of dreams that was so troubling that his sleep left him. He couldn't sleep. He wasn't able to sleep. Now, in verse 1, there is a little bit of a controversy, and uh, we don't have time to deal with that. Uh, it's a textual controversy uh, in the sense of the difference between Daniel's years of training and King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And they say, people say, oh, wait a minute, look, you know, there, you can't fit Daniel's training into King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can do that very simply because the way that they registered a king's reign was not by partial year. They only registered it by full year. So it's a possibility that the king was reigning for almost a full year uh, before it was even registered as his reign. And Nebuchadnezzar took over after his father. So usually what they would do is the previous king, especially if he was loved or he was good and uh, they didn't kind of get rid of him out the back door, uh, his reign would continue even though he was gone for the rest of that year. Uh, so uh, that's an easy way of dealing with that particular textual structure. And that's a, a problem for folks. But we want to break this passage down. Let's move on to verses 2 through 12. And here we have mystics beware. Why? Because there's a royal dare in verses 2 through 4. So the king's very disturbed about his dream. He's upset. He can't sleep. So he calls all his wise men and his counselors into him. And they're the magicians. They're the conjurers. They're the Chaldeans. They're the uh, astrologers. Uh, they're the sorcerers. He calls them all in to himself. And these are men most likely that his father had used. And so they were used to advising the king. And he calls them in. He calls them all in. He said, come on in here. And he gives them a dare, in a sense. And that dare to these experts is, in verse 2, tell me my dreams. Tell me my dreams. Look at verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in. Nothing new. They have been doing this for a while. But if you take a look at uh, this particular passage in verse 2 and 3, what you find here is that the king wanted to understand his dream. He didn't want to just know the dream. He wanted to understand it. That's why I said in terms of a nightmare that I don't believe it was the kind of nightmare, whew, you know, scary kind of nightmare, but one that was so, it was a dream that was so troubling. And it focuses in on one particular dream at this particular point. And so... Just like, uh, you know, they were politicians in those days as well. So what do they do? They come into the king and they say, Oh, king, live forever. You know, I mean, what are they trying to do? You know, 
you know, they're schmoozing, you know, they're, you know, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, you know, greasing the palm, you know, they, they're really, you know, they're really laying it on thick. Oh, king, live forever. And uh, he wanted to know his dream, so they ask a very simple question and, and give him a counter. They say, you know, look, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it in verse 4. Tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. Now, it was mentioned last night that chapter uh, 2, verse 4, the second half of the verse 4, all the way through chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. That's because Aramaic was the trade language of that day uh, among the Gentile nations. So they spoke to the king in Aramaic in verse 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we'll declare the interpretation. And so from here on all the way through chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. Now, I believe there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that chapter 2 through chapter 7 deals with Gentile nations. Deals with, deals with the history, the world history of Gentile nations. And so God is actually revealing. Notice, who did he reveal the dream to? Who did he, who did he give the dream to? He didn't give the dream to Daniel. He gave the dream to a pagan king. And we now know, of course, that that dream uh, you know, is prophetic, but he gave it to a pagan king. God is commuting, communicating to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the Goyim. He's communicating to them, look, you know, you, you know, beat on your chest now, but here's your history, and here's what's going to happen. And that's why I believe it's written in Aramaic, uh, so that it would be a message to the Gentiles. So... The king gives them a royal dare, and uh, they say, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you. But he catches them in a very clever snare. In fact, in verse 5, he said, the command is firm. Now, some translations talk about the fact that the dream is gone, or it's done with, and uh, some say, well, oh, you know what happened? The king forgot the dream, and so he's asking them to tell him. That's not an accurate translation. A more accurate translation is the command is firm. What it means is that the, the king, the monarch, his command is firm and he's not going to change it. And what was his command? Tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation. He didn't forget it. It's irrevocable. That's his decision. And notice what happens. Look at the text. What happens? He adds this, that if you don't do this, I'm not going to pay you this month. If you don't do this, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Now, whether that means he's going to tie their limbs to horses and, you know, split them or do, you know, whatever. You know, they did all kind of cruel things, but he's going to tear them limb from limb, scatter their body parts, and then he's going to take their houses and he's going to turn them into, uh, and I guess the politest way to say this is he's going to turn them into a public outhouse. And that's what they did to people that, you know, that double-crossed them or the people that they didn't like. You know, you think politics is rough in America. I mean, you know. And, and so he was going to turn their homes into public outhouses, public restrooms. But once again, in verse 6, he says, you've got to tell me the dream and the interpretation, and I will reward you. I'll reward you. But what are these wise guys, these wise men, uh, what are these sorcerers and so on? They come back. They're in trouble, aren't they? They're in big trouble. 
So they come back and they ask again. Look at verse 7. What does it say in verse 7? They make a second appeal. Tell us the dream. Tell us the dream. They want to know that. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. So how does the king respond? The king responds, the command is firm. Here's the deal. Tell me the dream, tell me the interpretation, or, well, you know the rest. So this is what the king is saying. If you look at verse 9, he basically says to them, there's only one decree, you know, and I'm not changing my mind. Uh, If you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me an interpretation. What are they saying? The king is saying to them, you're a bunch of con men. You're a bunch of con men. I know you're trying to buy some time. You're trying to deceive me. Look, I'm not that stupid. You're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Now, they didn't use those terms, but uh, that's basically what he's saying. And he tells them, guess what? My command, my decree is final. Well, that, that's kind of a problem for the wise men, isn't it? Because in the past, most likely, they had gone into the king and they'd said, oh, yes, this is what it means. Oh, king live forever and so on. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit smarter than that. And he said, tell me the dream. Tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The king is demanding validation for the interpretation. He's demanding validation for the interpretation. He doesn't want a con job. He doesn't want them to make something up. And so he said, you must tell me the dream first. And once you tell me the dream, then I'll know that the interpretation is true. He demands validation. You see, the reason for this particular passage is so important. We look at it and say, oh, you know, let's get over this story stuff. Come on. You know, okay, so the wise men, you know, this, and then they came in and this, and you know, we want, the, we want the good stuff at the end of the chapter where it's talking about, uh, you know, the dream and the statue and the this and the stone and the, you know, we want that. Oh, let's get further on in the book. You know, I want the four-headed leopard and... But you see, the narrative that God gives us validates the message of the book. It validates the message of the book. It validates the message of the dream. Because you see, what you're going to find here is the fact that the king asked for validation of the interpretation. And we'll notice later on as I continue in this passage, they can't do it. But God validates the message of Daniel and the message of the book through the circumstances and by providing that information. So the narrative in the book validates the message. The narrative of uh, the fiery furnace validates the message. The narrative of Daniel and Lions then validates the message. They aren't just simple Sunday school lessons. God puts every little word and letter in his, in his word for a purpose. 
And so the narrative is very, very important. Well, in one last desperate attempt in verse 10 and 11, you know, what do they do? The wise men actually say probably the wisest and the most sensible thing that they've said so far, probably the most sensible thing they've said in their entire life, because the magicians are just in despair at this particular point. And what do they say? They say in verse 10, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter. Amen. They finally got to, finally said, there's not a man on earth who can declare this matter. And in fact, then they kind of come back and give a backhanded slap at the king. Uh, it's going to turn around to bite them, but they backhanded slap and say, no king or no monarch has ever asked this kind of thing of anybody. So basically they're saying, you know, you're foolish for asking. You know, they come in, oh, king, live forever, oh, wonderful, oh, what can we do for you? And now they're saying, what you're asking, nobody can answer. No one can answer. There's not a man on earth who can declare the matter, and no king in his right mind would even ask such a thing because he would know better. But they go on with even more wisdom that they don't even know that they have. Notice in verse 11, verse 10, no man can answer Verse 11, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Boy, do they have a lesson coming, don't they? They have a lesson coming. One day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, the Chaldeans and the magicians and the wise guys and so on are going to be right there. Because we know a God whose dwelling is with flesh don't we? In the person of Jesus Christ. Wow. But they say, you know, nobody but the gods in verse 11. Wow. I mean, they're setting this up. Do you see why I said the narrative validates, you know, the message that's coming? They're setting Daniel up. God is using unsaved, ungodly sorcerers. He's using the California psychic line to validate his message that's about to come except that they aren't giving the reading that no one can, you know, doubt. And there's no money-back guarantee. So, you know, but God is setting it up. The, me- the, the, the narrative here validates the message to come. Well, the king isn't too happy about this in verse 12. In fact, he's indignant because they just keep pushing and they gave him this backhanded slap, this insult. And so they keep pushing. And he was exceedingly furious in verse 12. As, uh, as you look at that. And he, the order was given to destroy all the wise men in Babylon. Now, whether that means the city or the province of Babylon, that doesn't mean globally because Babylon was a large empire, but he wants to, you know, he says, okay, execute them. Gather them up. That's it. I'm sick of them. They're a bunch of fakes. They're a bunch of liars. I don't want them around. And they keep pushing and they keep conning and they keep doing this. And so the order of execution went out. Now, what's the next thing that we find out? As we move into the passage, in uh, verse 13, we find out that there's this life-threatening scare is about to come, not only on the magicians, but look at verse 13. The decree went forth, and they looked for Daniel and his friends. Whoa, hold on here. Daniel and his friends weren't even there. 
But the decree was that all the wise men, and because Daniel and his friends had exceeded all their expectations, he was a part of the group. Now, maybe they still had to pay their dues and work their way up and so on because they weren't called in. They weren't the, they weren't the high mucky mucks. You know, uh, they didn't have instant ac- he didn't have instant access there. But uh, wow. Now, they weren't looking for Daniel and his friends to get an answer either. They weren't looking for Daniel and his friends to come and say, you know, fix this. No, they were looking for Daniel and his friends to kill them. To kill them. That's what the, that's, you know, that's what the text says. They went to look for Daniel and his friends to take them out, to execute them. Now, how this execution was taking place, we don't really know. Whether they were going to gather all the wise guys together and uh, do it in a mass execution, or whether they were executing them as uh, they found them. Uh, We don't know that, but it was a very dire situation. And uh, here we have the first of the life and death situations and circumstances for Daniel and his friends. And there are a number of them throughout the book. Once again, the narrative will validate the message. We move on because not only was there a dire situation for Daniel and his friends, but God does unlikely things, doesn't he? Doesn't God kind of, you know, sometimes I get a, you know, excuse me for saying this, I get a kick out of the way that God works because he doesn't work the way that I think. His ways are so far above my ways and so on. You know, he works through a young woman in a village named Nazareth who's a nobody. He, he, he makes a donkey speak. You know, he, he uses, you know, the, the smallest of the brothers named David. God works in unlikely ways, and so he puts this unlikely pair together, this unlikely pair of people together in verse 14 to 16, and you'll see that, that Arioch, Arioch is the captain of the king's bodyguard, and he's the one that was tasked with the executions. So he's the one that had to gather everybody together. But Daniel, even though he's at a young age, Daniel has a lot of discernment that the Lord has given to him. And so Daniel doesn't, you know, say, uh, you know, whoa, wait a minute here, where's the nearest window? No, really, you know, hey, it's Arioch. I've come to carry out the king's command of execution. You know, I don't know if I'd open the door. <laughs> but what does Daniel do? Daniel talks to him. Daniel talks to him and with discretion, and, and Daniel asks him the question, uh, you know, why such harshness? That's really what it means. Why such urgency? Why such harshness? Why is this so pressing? What's going on here? Because Daniel and his friends, you know, by the text, didn't know what was going on. They didn't know about the king's dream. They didn't know about other things. They didn't know about the wise guys who had failed and tried to con the king. They didn't know that. And so he asked, and he comes up with this bold plan. Now, to us, it seems almost counterintuitive or a little stupid. What's his plan? Take me to the king. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, Daniel, don't you understand? The, the, you know, the, the king says, you know, off with their heads. The king says, limb from limb. And yet... Daniel comes up with this bold plan. 
if you look a little closer, it's not all that dumb of a plan. The king knew that the wise men couldn't give him the dream and couldn't give him the interpretation. What does Daniel say? What does he say here? Look at verse 14 to 16. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment, and uh, he, he talks to him about uh, you know, what's going on, and he wanted to know why this was so urgent. Verse 16, so uh, Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. The king still wanted to know about his dream. He was still troubled. He didn't give up on it. Killing all the wise men, killing all the sorcerers, killing all the astrologers wasn't going to answer the turmoil in his own heart. Daniel comes with a very viable solution. And rather interesting here, that Daniel asked for time to declare the interpretation. Notice he doesn't mention the dream and uh, we have no mention that the king mentions it. If someone comes, you know, the other said, tell us the dream, tell us the dream. But Daniel doesn't say, tell us the dream. Daniel comes and says to him, king, give me a little time and I'll tell you the interpretation. He doesn't even ask for the dream. Different, isn't it? And so the king knows that if he's going to tell an interpretation, he'll have to know the dream. So what's he offering? So Daniel, really with the wisdom that God gives him, uh, you know, and, uh, and God putting together with Arioch, the, the king's bodyguard, just uh, unbelievable the way that God is working here. Well, Daniel goes to see the king, and if you look in verse 17, uh, it doesn't tell us what the king's answer is, but it must have been positive because... Daniel still has his arms and legs. And so uh, he has been ripped limb from limb. And, uh, you know, I assume he walked back to wherever he was living and he goes to his uh, friends. Uh, we know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, yet uh, we know them by their Jewish names, which are mentioned here. Rather interesting because Daniel still calls them by that. Uh, Hananiah, you know, Mishael, and Azariah. And he goes to them and he tells them about this mess. He tells them about the mess and tells them what's going on because they didn't know what was going on in verse 17 to 18. And what does he say to them? He tells them that he wants them to pray. And he said, we need to request compassion from the God of heaven. Request compassion from the God of heaven. And as I was reviewing this this morning uh, and uh, going over the message and, and this popped up and I, I looked at it, I thought, you know, uh, a little diversion here. I thought, you know, that's, that's what I need to be asking God for, for Florida. Not saying send it to someone else, but God, have compassion and mercy and grace upon the people of Florida. Have compassion, mercy, and grace on, uh, you know, on the churches. And put it in the Lord's hands. So he tells them to request compassion from the God of heaven. And why are they supposed to do this? Why is this so urgent? Well, look at the passage. It's urgent because they didn't want to be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. See that in verse 18? So that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Well, they go to prayer. 
And uh, God is good because in verse 19, it appears that the prayer is answered. And it's, not, uh, it's obvious you know, that the prayer was answered, although it doesn't give us the communication between God and, and Daniel. Uh, he was answered in a night vision, not a dream, answered in a night vision there. And it tells us in verse 19 that the mystery was revealed. The mystery was revealed to Daniel. And I want you to see Daniel's response. Daniel's response in verse 19. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He blessed the God of heaven. He praised the Lord. He gave thanks. He worshiped. He took that time. Wow. Once again, you know, Daniel, a far better guy than I am. I'd be running out and saying, I've got it. I've got it. I've got the answer. Oh, stop. Wait. You know, but Daniel takes the time uh, to worship and praise the Lord. And basically what he worships and praises the Lord, it's uh, some commentators call it Daniel's psalm here in verse 20 uh, through verse 23. Uh, but uh, what he does is he's, he basically says that no one can compare. No one can compare to God. And his wisdom and power is extraordinary. No one can compare Let's take a look a, a little bit closer at his psalm and his praise. I want you to see a few things. In verse 20, what does he do? Verse 20, he declares the wisdom and power belong to God. Who is this? This is the God of heaven. This is the God that the sorcerers and the Chaldeans and the astrologers said didn't have anything to do with men. And he was the only one who had the answers. They're right. God is the owner of all wisdom and all power. God, in verse 20. Notice in verse 21, it tells us that he changes the times and the epochs. He changes the times and the seasons. Now, that's not summer, winter, fall. He's talking about the seasons of men, the seasons of kingdoms, the seasons of the world. The times, the time periods, who's in authority, who isn't. The times, he's over history. He's over the past, he's over the present, he's over the future. He is the one that removes kings and establishes kings. He is the one that removes kings and establishes kings. I think this is a verse that needs to be etched over the doorway of the White House. I think it's a verse that would be good to kind of fly over North Korea and drop some pamphlets. Or anywhere in the world. Because you see Daniel saying, you know what? God is sovereign. He, in verse 21, gives wisdom and knowledge. No one has wisdom and knowledge. What did the, the astrologers say? They said, King, there's no man on earth that can answer this. Nobody on earth is smart enough to answer this. And you know what? I like Daniel because Daniel doesn't say, I, he said, he's the one who gives wisdom and knowledge. In verse 21. Verse 22. He reveals the profound and the hidden things. He reveals the profound and the hidden things. Folks, please don't be offended by this, but we're stupid. <laughs> really. You know, as intelligent as we think we are and as great as we, you know, think so many things are, we're basically stupid. 
The only wisdom and the only truth that comes is the truth that comes from a God who reveals it to us and gives it to us and grants it to us. The only power that we have, other than illicit power, is the power that God gives. We look at the word and, and uh, you know, I look at Mike and I look at David who are going to follow this morning and say, wow, these guys really know the word of God. God gave that wisdom. God revealed those truths. Where did we get this? Not because men wrote it. We got this because God revealed it. He reveals the profound and the hidden things in verse 22. And in verse 22, he goes on and says, he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing at all. Verse 23, he goes on to now give the source of his answer and his joy. Thou hast given me wisdom and power. Not only is God the source and the owner of all wisdom and power, but he shares it with men for his purposes. And he gave it to Daniel. Goes on in verse 23, Thou hast made known what we requested, the king's matter. The king's matter. God revealed the truth. God revealed the truth. Well, the time has come for Daniel to do something with all of this great wisdom and this great knowledge, and it's time to declare. Now, the dream needs to be laid bare, and the interpretation needs to be shared. So uh, he goes back to uh, Arioch in verse 24, and he says, whoa, 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 stop. Don't destroy the wise men. Don't destroy them. Don't, don't kill them. Take me to the king. I will declare the interpretation. And in verse 25, Arioch, being the political genius that he is, he runs into the king, and uh, he hurries right to him, and uh, he said, oh, wait, wait, there's an interpretation to share. I found a man. Notice that? See that in verse 25? You know, he figures, you know, what was the promise to the one who told the dream there was going to be great treasure, there was going to be great benefit, great, you know, blessing. And so Ariok says, you know, I want a piece of the action here. You know, a little political, you know, whatever. And so he goes in and says, I found this guy. I found him. He takes credit and he said, he's somebody that can tell you the interpretation. Well, Daniel goes into the king in verse 26. And the king asked him, uh, said to Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Notice now we're back to dream and interpretation. And Daniel doesn't take credit, doesn't give him the answer, but Daniel gives a testimony of who God is. Because what does the king need to know more than anything else? Not the dream, not the interpretation, but who is really sovereign over all. And so Daniel in verse 27 says, no wise man, no wise man is able to declare this dream to you. And in verse 30 goes on to say, no wisdom, there's no wisdom in me any more than any other. I, there's nothing special about me, Daniel says. Rather interesting because today we make Daniel special and Daniel's going around saying, I'm not special, it's all God. You know, something to remember here, folks, the main character of the book is God, not Daniel. It's God, not Daniel. However, even though I have no more wisdom than anyone else, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Wow, 
What did the wise men say? They said, only God in heaven, and he doesn't have anything to do with us. Well, guess what? The God in heaven is the one who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream. Because he who reveals mysteries has made it known to you. What's going to take place in the future? What will take place in the future? Notice here, the narrative validates God's sovereignty. The narrative validates God's sovereignty. No man can give you an answer. Only the gods in heaven, and they were astrologers, and only those gods in heaven, and they have nothing to do with men. The narrative. Now Daniel comes back, and what does he say? It's not about me. It's about him. It's about the God in heaven. He reveals these things. He is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. He's sovereign over the past, present, and future. He's sovereign over wisdom and knowledge. He is sovereign over life and death. Who gets torn limb from limb and who doesn't get torn limb from limb? He is sovereign even over the dreams of a king. Because you see, Daniel went in and had something to tell the king. And what did he tell the king? What was he declaring? He declared, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Amen? Amen. For more audio resources, including MP3 downloads of past Prophecy Conferences, visit us at foi.org.